Megan Van Lenty and I'm Heather Van Dyke, and we're both from Kalamazoo Christian Middle School. Uh, I used to do this with Roxanne Niebuhr, who was our librarian, and she has decided to bow out in favor of grandchildren, which I can understand. And so Megan agreed to, to join me this year, and between the two of us, we've read 27, 30 books, something like that. So Heather more than me. Just this year. I'm sure she'll catch up. Um, we are very excited. There's some great books, as always, this year. So if you have any questions, we'll try and make sure we've got some question time at the end. All right, Megan's going to start out with the miscalculations of Lightning Girl. And I have to make, figure out how to make this thing go forward. So there we go. Okay. Um, so this is a really fun book. I don't know if any of you guys have read Wonder or some of those books that are in the, the style of a child with a unique problem or situation and how are they going to live in real life with normal people. Um, it starts very similarly. The main character's name is Lucy. Um, she was struck by lightning um, in second grade or something, and since then has like, been this child prodigy in math, um, but has the problem of, of having some quirks and um, that she has to sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up like eight times or three times or something before she can actually sit down in a chair. And so whenever she does that, people look at her like she's strange, and so she stops leaving the house and wants to stay home all the time, of course, because she has some strange things that happen in her head with math and cause her to do strange things. So she doesn't go to school, and then her grandma decides that really she should go to a normal middle school. So it's the middle school age, her coming into a middle school classroom, all the normal middle school things that are hard and happen, and she feels out of place, as does everyone else, but she feels like it's just her, and how does she kind of walk through that with the hope in her mind that if she does one year, she never has to go back again. That's what her grandma promised her. And so that's her hope that she's living in, that you know this is a short phase in life that will end and she'll go back to being by herself at home. And of course, you can imagine that you know, there is some life lessons learned and she does in some ways figure out how to connect with her peers and, and somewhat return to the land of the living. Um, but it's a really nice book, fun to read, and I thought... There's a lot of middle school girls out there that could connect to how she feels, um, just kind of alone and different, and how to struggle through that, and um, has a really nice positive message of hope that you can make it through middle school. So, as a middle school teacher, I felt encouraged for that, so that's the first one. All right, our next book is Saving Winslow. It's by Sharon Creech, those of you who are familiar with her other work. Um, I loved this book. It's a really short read. It has very, very short chapters. And you know how some books are very hopeful, but they kind of set your teeth on edge because there's all the problems are solved, and everybody's happy, and that's it. This is, this is a book where it's really hopeful, and it, the characters grow, and you know there's hope for them in their lives. That They're not done yet but they're moving in the right direction. Uh, it's about a little boy named Louie, and Louie has terrible luck with pets. Um, everything he's ever tried to raise has died. Now, when you read the descriptions of why some of these animals died, you, you start to realize, well, you know, a three-year-old who keeps lightning bugs in a jar, they're going to die. It's not really his fault. Other times, the animal was so ill or sick or whatever, uh, it was never really going to live. Well, his dad brings home this tiny newborn mini donkey and Louis is determined to save him and 
as the story progresses, you start to understand why Louis is so desperately holding on to this donkey and why he so wants this little donkey to live. His much-loved older brother, Gus, has entered the army. And in Louis's life, there's this big, big hole. And Winslow helps to fill it. Winslow also helps his little friend, Nora, that he's met recently. And she's still struggling to deal with how do you love when you've lost someone special to you? Because at the beginning of the book, everybody warns Louis, don't name him. Because, well, you know, what if... Um, he's like, don't say it, don't say it. We're going to name him Winslow. And Nora doesn't understand why you would spend so much time with something that might die. And as the story progresses, you find out her little brother died. And she's still very much struggling with how to love again. So it's, it's great, because everybody grows. I have a hard time not crying about this one. <laughs> but it's a beautiful book, uh, fifth grade, and probably even fourth graders would love this. And uh, What's next? Harbor Me. Oh, I don't have this one with me. Harbor Me is a fabulous book. This is a great middle school book, especially for the kids. If you can get the kids who are struggling to read this, the ones who feel different, the ones who are the outsiders, the ones whose parents are going through a divorce, whatever. This is a great book. Um, the premise is there are six children in a special classroom. We don't really know why they're there. We don't know if it's... It's never really spelled out, which is kind of nice. Um, and the teacher that they're put with really works well with them and comes up with an idea that the last hour of every day or every Friday, I forget exactly which, they get to go to the old art room. And the six of them just get to sit there and talk. No adults in the room. You've got an hour to talk. Whatever is fine. So the first time, the kids just sort of sit there and they just sort of look at each other like, <laughs> we're in the same class, but what on earth are we doing here? And, you know, the usual middle school sort of things, like there's a certain amount of bantering and a certain amount of picking on and figuring out the pecking order and stuff like that. And they start to name the room the A-A-R-T. Or no, the A-R-T-T. A Room to Talk. And as the story progresses, um, the main character, Haley, starts recording them. Because she starts to realize that people aren't always there. That sometimes people get taken away. And we start learning the backstories through her recorder of all of the other kids in the room. Her father's in jail. And we don't learn until the end of the story the reason why her father's in jail and exactly what happened to her mother. Because she's being raised by her uncle. I don't want to give this one away. It's a beautiful story. You've got to read it. Um, it's very short. It's only like about this thick. Is it in verse? What? Is it in verse? Not in verse. Nope, they're chapters. Uh, chapters are about three, four, five pages each. Um, and it's how do you... Best line is at the end where she's saying, I, do, I want to forget. I want to forget. I want to forget. And her friend says, it's not forgetfulness you need. It's forgiveness. Ooh. So, it's great. Yeah. Um, the next book is Out of the Wild Night by, and I don't even have to say the name, Blue Elliot Penn. Um, this was an interesting book for me. I tend to jump into a book and like it and read it, and I like a lot of books. There's not many I don't like. This was a really hard book for me to read. 
And I think if it was hard for me to read, it might be hard for a, a middle school age kid to read. Um, it was hard because, um, well, first of all, it's set in Nantucket, you know, a little island, um, whaling, fishing island off the New England coast. And um, it's called a ghost story. And the main narrator is a ghost who used to live on the island 100 years before. So there's a lot of really interesting things in the book about the culture of Nantucket, the language of that particular little niche. You know, someone who lived there wrote this. I mean, or, or she did a lot of research um, because there's a lot of really neat stuff in it. The thing that was hard is sometimes it went from that narrator, the ghost narrator, to like this really pulled back omniscient narrator that didn't give you nearly enough information to know what was going on. And the whole point, right, was so that it was like kind of this ghostly feel and what's happening and kind of like trying to create suspense and like, well, who is it? Why are they there? And it, but the, the narrator is asking the questions, right? Like, there's someone who's there? And like, I had no idea what was going on then, right? Like, I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> just tell me. So that, that was hard. And the, there's kids as the main characters who are trying to solve the problem of a lot of the old homes are being torn down and um, replaced or, or fixed up in a way that loses the character of the old homes. And so the ghosts are coming back to try to save their homes because when you take the homes away, the ghosts go away too. And they don't want to leave Nantucket. They want to be a part. So I never felt like, from that Christian perspective, that it was there was no mention of God at all. There was no mention of spirituality. And it was, it was kind of void of that, which I thought also thought maybe bothered me. Um, there was no reason other than the ghosts were held there by the, by the buildings, right? Like their, their heritage or their, um, it was, it was a strange book and I held on to the end because of you all. Okay. I finished the book because I was like, I have to like be able to talk about that. I started the book. I got to finish the book. And I cried in the last three pages. So I'm like, oh, 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 it all, like it all came together. And oh, that was a really nice ending. So anyway, take for that what you will. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't like it. And then at the end, I kind of liked it. So there you go. <laughs> but it also is kind of hard from that Christian perspective. Like being void of that, I feel like you'd have to, I'd want to talk about a kid. Uh, talk to a child about it who read it because it's just different than my perspective as a Christian about people from the, you know, the whole concept. And there can be the, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on oh, about it's okay. it. But, it's okay. but you know, you think about a Harry Potter st- style where there's like the ghost, but this really deals a lot more with the spiritual element of ghosts than, than a story like Harry Potter does that kind of throws that in as a character. Like this is much deeper than that. So, um, yeah, I think it's one maybe worth reading if you think kids goodness, Something's goes, going on next are door. going to read it. It might be worth reading to have the conversation. Okay, full disclosure, I have not finished this book. My review is based on the fact that my 4th grader, 7th grader, and ninth grader all read it. That's part of the reason I never got to finish it. I could never find it in the house. They all loved it. Um, Catherine Applegate... Uh, she wrote the one and only Ivan. That was the one about the gorilla. Um, this is a new series. Endling the Last is the first book in it. And the next one in the series comes out, I believe, next March or May. And it's Endling the First. The idea of an endling is it's the last of the species to survive. And the characters are these 
Okay, it, it takes a little bit to get into because not only do the characters have unusual names, like made-up names, they also have made-up creatures. And you have to try and figure out, okay, does this creature look like a dog? Does it look kind of like a koala? Um, I mean, from the, the front of this, you kind of get the feeling that you've got a dog-like character and something vaguely, I don't know, kangaroo, mouse-ish. <laughs> I teach science, too. Um, but apparently these things have super soft fur, and they've got, they're sort of like a cross between a dog and a flying squirrel. I don't know. They're, they're intelligent, but they also eat these things, so there's like eating of other sentient creatures sort of thing, and it's... But the idea is, what, how do you go on if you're the last one? How do you relate with people that, I mean, how do you accept being saved by somebody that normally might eat you? How do you survive when everything you've known is gone? And what's the reason for surviving? So I, I, I'm assuming the rest of it's going to be as good as the first few chapters. My kids loved it. All right, for, those, for kids that have loved the whole Rick Riordan universe of mythology, uh, Kieran Mala and the Kingdom Beyond, book one is The Serpent's Secret. The interesting thing about this is this is not a Western mythology. This is Indian mythology. So uh, specifically, um, I liked it that in the back she talks about some of the, or in the front, I forget where, somewhere in the book, the author does give some notes about, you know, these are some of the characters that she puts in there, the monsters that she puts in there. Even the main character come from Indian folklore and Indian mythology. Now, that being said, you also have to realize that there's going to be, you know, mythology is religion and worldview. And it's easy to say to the Greek and Norse mythology, nobody believes those anymore. But this is, you know, Indian mythology is an active worldview. So... Some parents may wonder, you know, if this is an active worldview, why, why would you want to have a book like this? Others are like, it's, it's not preaching the worldview, it's a story. So it, it was a lot of fun. Um, at first, Kieran Mala is really kind of annoying. She's a Jersey girl, and she doesn't understand why her parents are so protective, and they have this weird little moat around the house, and she always has to dress like a princess on Halloween. Well, it's because she really is a princess from fourth dimension of some sort and she is the daughter of the moon and the serpent king which gives her all sorts of interesting powers that she has to discover so it's a, it's a lot of fun it's a good adventure story on the topic of myths North mytho norse mythology i love norwegian myths partly because i lived in norway for a year this is a great version because the pictures are just so stark and Scandinavian. Loki looks like a bad guy. Um, this worldview, though, values physical prowess, violence, and trickery. So the way you get ahead is, is either by beating down your enemies or by deceiving them, and sometimes even deceiving your friends to get what you want. So, you know, just be aware. It's pretty gory. One of the ways they get Loki to quit messing up with everything is to sew his lips shut. Yeah. So, the, the picture is just really cool. I mean, there we go. There's Thor pulled in his magic chariot by his magic goats. I mean, it's, it's really great. <laughs> 
the next book is called Rebound by Kwame Alexander. And I think we might not have one of those in because the library can't keep a copy of it in the library. You get two copies of yeah. um, So I don't know if you've read any other books by Kwame Alexander, um, but I, I grabbed this one and took it away from the library over the summer when no other kids were wanting to read it. And I had read the other books by Kwame Alexander, Booked and Crossover, crossover thanks. Um, so he his typical... Of, of this kind of style is um, usually an African-American male middle school age character in all three of those books I think at least it, it has been this included um, some sort of sports theme and also coming of age learning to deal with life issues <coughs> in life um, so if you've read Crossover um, this was an interesting one it's set in the 1980s so um, kind of a generation before crossover, and I don't want to give anything away, but I read, um, I read crossover, and then I read this one. Now realizing some of the links between them, and got to the end of this one, and was like, oh, "This is amazing!" So I recommend reading them both, um, and and. Uh, I really like the the key thing for Kwame Alexander. Everything is in in verse. It's novel in verse, and he is an amazing poet. Just I, over and over, every page I turn, um, just his way of playing with words and using like the words that go off and down the page to like like a basketball bouncing, you know, for some of the some of the verses. Um, he does a lot of um, you know, yeah, making the image with it or using. Um, some sort of an alliteration or, or the letters of something spell something out. I mean, every one is like a different style of poetry and all these cool poetic devices where I'm like, and he did that and he did that. I'm like, how did he? I just can't. Wow. It's amazing. So talk about a cool way of reading and a cool way of, of poetry being involved and then just like the stories that he tell are really engaging and the things that kids are really dealing with and the struggles that they have, again, like middle school age. And as a middle school teacher, there's just like so much empathy there um, for the characters for me. But I think he really gets into characters' heads. Um, and I teach a college class on children's literature, and some of my college students are reading book or um, crossover. And they were just this week kind of commenting on how he's able to encapsulate the emotions of a middle schooler perfectly. So um, I highly recommend. Him as an author in this book as well. Yeah, and boys who won't read poetry, yeah, love it. Yeah, they're into the book because they're about sports connection. stuff and yeah. yeah. All right, my life as a YouTuber. This is book seven in her series of my life as a. I love the timeliness of this topic because it's basic. I also love that it uses the margins to describe both in written form but also in pictorial form different big words which is actually the technique of the character in the story to start learning you know vocabulary words and things so it's it's really a fun book the great overall message is just because you have a gopro and you've ripped off your favorite uh, music from your brother's iPod, that does not mean you're going to be a rising star in YouTube. It actually takes work and planning and thinking about how your actions, your video, your content, your words are going to affect the other people in the video and the people who are watching it. In his case, the other 
the subject of his original videos is the monkey that they're supposed to be raising at home to help as an assistant monkey for you know people that are disabled. And that kind of, he learns a lot about responsibility, that it's not just what mom and dad see, it's also what you do when mom and dad aren't there. So a lot about personal integrity. Darius the Great is Not Okay is a great, I really, really enjoyed this book. Um, this would definitely be for an older audience. I wouldn't suggest it for like below eighth grade. Um, the main character is Iranian-American, specifically Persian. And his maternal grandfather back in Iran is diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so the family goes to Iran to visit. Now, it's it's great because he acknowledges the fact that when most people, he lives in Portland, Oregon, when most people hear you're going to Iran, they immediately think Taliban and turbans and Muslims and terrorism and all those sorts of things. And he's like, we're Zoroastrians. I'm like, oh, that's a very different take. So his whole concept of like, he's viewing the Muslims as those are those other people that live in Iran. We're Zoroastrians. And there are those Christians, too. You know, they've run into some problems in the Baha'i. Like, his best friend is Baha'i. So it's a very, very different look at life in Iran. Um, the main purpose of this book is, though, talking not just about what it's like to be the outsider, but he struggles with clinical depression. And so does his father. And as the story progresses, you know, you start to see how his relationship with his father is going south, in part because his father also suffers from clinical depression. And the medications that they both have to take, when you step back as the reader, you start to realize that's part of the wall that's between them. And at the very end, the father says, "My," you have this great breakthrough moment where the dad says, I am so sorry I gave this to you. <laughs> and that's the moment where I broke down. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's, it's a really, really good story. Um, and you learn a lot about Persian culture, which I thought was really cool. And he's a huge Star, star Trek geek and loves Tolkien. <laughs> like his, his prime bullier back at home in Portland, he refers to his fatty boulder. It's one of the hobbits at the very beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, I'm a Tolkien geek, too. <laughs> uh, also on the topic of classical literature. This is a really interesting take. The sea was our sky. It's sort of a retelling of Moby Dick. And you see how everything is upside down? It took a little bit to realize that when the whale, the main character, I mean, it starts with, call me Bathsheba. It's a female whale. And the abyss is not going deeper into the ocean. The abyss is coming out and surfacing. And it's in this, the, the whales have created a parallel society to mankind. Whales hunt men just like men hunt whales. And so it's a really, it's kind of a retelling of Moby Dick, but kind of not. It's like they take the characters and kind of go in different directions. There is no Captain Ahab, but there is the mysterious, demonic Toby Wick. Which I was like, I'm like, oh, really? But it's, it's a really good story. Um, and the illustrations are just a 
amazing. So they they capture a human that's alive and things like that. All right. Um, the next book is called Sunny by Jason Reynolds, and this is this book is part of a larger series called I put it in here the Track series. And so I was uh, just like the start. I was in um, the library a couple weeks ago with my sixth graders, and you know I, we're always like, "What book to read?" You know, and the kids are asking me, and I'm talking to kids about books. And um, so the the librarian had this one and some of the other Track series ones kind of together up on. A ledge, and I said to one of the kids, like, oh, I really like this one. It's new to the library. It's called Sunny. They're like, oh, yeah, we read all the rest of those. Like, yeah, those are good. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Apparently, I'm behind the times. So <laughs> so then I started asking the kids, because then I'm curious. They know more about this than I do sometimes. Um, this book, Sunny, is one of the characters on the track team, and he is um, the mile runner. He's really good at the mile. Um, he wins every race, and he hates running it. And so, but his dad makes him. His dad's like, that's the thing you're going to run. And that's the thing. And it's kind of revealed later why that is. His mom was a very good track runner. She never got to kind of get to the end of her career. She passed away. He's taking, you know, and that's revealed pretty early in the book that that's the motivation for the dad to keep him doing this thing, to like honor his mom. And he's like, but I'm me. I'm not my mom. And I want to do my thing. And so it's the struggle that he's having as a middle schooler of like making his dad happy, making himself happy doing the thing because that's the thing he's supposed to do, doing something because he loves to do it, and so it's kind of his personal struggle. It's kind of cool because it's all written in Dear Diary format, um, which I thought was fun. Like, it was just a neat way to, like, reveal things. Of, you know, it's really all about, like, his process. And so as a reader and as an adult, I can read it and say, like, oh, there's a lot more going on to the story of why, but he doesn't understand that as a character. So it's a very close first person um, and so a lot of that has to be revealed that he is, he is figuring out why. And so it's really like, oh, yeah, okay, I saw that coming, maybe more as an adult. I don't know if kids see that coming. But, um, but I liked how the author revealed some of those things through um, the process of a diary. However, I, I was talking to my students, and they said not all of them are written in diary format. So I thought that was interesting that the author chose to write this part of the series as a diary. But some of the other characters... I have a feeling he, he kind of takes different perspectives or, um, you know, isn't all diary format. But I liked it. It was fun, and he does, because it's his own diary, do a little bit of, like, you know, the girl he likes and the, um, you know, a little poem here or there to kind of throw things off. Or he's just kind of a little creative, so it was fun. A girl, the, the Adventures of a Girl Called Bicycle. This is probably one of my favorites just for its sheer whimsy. It's a delightful story. Uh, a girl has been abandoned at the mostly silent nuns, or sorry, the mostly silent monks monastery. <laughs> and they end up calling her Bicycle because she loves bicycles. I mean, when they first, when, you know, when she's first abandoned, it's before she can talk and walk and things like that. But as she grows, because it's mostly silent monks, they don't really need to call her anything because they can motion and things. But she eventually becomes called Bicycle. And being raised with the mostly silent monks, she doesn't talk to a lot of kids her age. And eventually, Sister Wanda, who is a retired mostly silent nun, so she takes care of all the talking, um, 
decides that it's time for Bicycle to make friends with children her own age. So she sets up playdates and Bicycle rides away on her trusty bike. Or she sends her to go to somebody's something and she hides in a corner with her bicycle. So finally, she finds the Friendship Factory. Three friends guaranteed or your money back. (laughs) Which sounds absolutely horrific to Bicycle. And she's stuck on the bus with all of these other kids, and they shoot spit wads at her. I mean, these are the dregs of children. She doesn't like their noise, and she doesn't like their smell, and none of them like her bicycle. So she hatches a plan to make a friend. She's going to show Sister Wanda she can make a friend, and she's picked her friend. It is the Polish bicyclist champion of several Tour de France's who is going to be in San Francisco in two months' time for the blessing of the bicycles. And her plan, which is very detailed, is to ride cross-country to meet him. She's going to pick up Polish along the way. She's got a Polish-English dictionary. She's going to teach herself Polish while she rides across the country and meet this friend. And because they both love bicycles and she speaks Polish too, it's going to work. Well, you can kind of guess that some things in those plans are going to go awry. But as she travels across country, it's a great view of the United States from bicycle level. And the author has actually (laughs) ridden across country a couple times. So she knows what she's talking about. And she makes friends. She doesn't realize she's making friends all along the way, but she does. Now, some of the whimsy in this is early in her trip, she stops at a Civil War battlefield, and her bicycle becomes haunted by the ghost of a Civil War soldier, and all he wants to do is get back to Missouri, where he can you know, help his friend make hand pies, you know, like pasties and things like that. And so that, that plays into the whole story, too. It's really, really cute. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, the Book of Boy is a quest of an entirely different nature. Um, the back, rib, tooth, thumb, toe, dust, skull, tomb. It's set in the Middle Ages, and it's supposed to be a quest to find these various relics of St. John. And it, there's a lot of slow, steady reveals. Boy is only referred to as boy. And in the local manor system, it's recently been ravaged by the Black Death, so there are fewer and fewer people that are left. And boy is low on the totem pole constantly picked on because of misshapen, small, just abnormal. And a pilgrim comes into town and says, that's, that's the one I want. Come with me. And as we go through, at first you start to think, well, maybe boy really is a girl. Because boy talks about always needing to be covered. Never let them see who you are. And then you realize, no, there's something different. Maybe hunchback, because they talk about being misshapen. Do you want me to give it away or not? I might have given it away in there, but don't worry. It's really cool. And you also, though, on the flip side, find out more and more about this pilgrim. Why does the pilgrim need the boy to carry the relics? Why can't the pilgrim carry the relics himself? How old exactly is this pilgrim? It's very mysterious. It's really, really cool. And I love history. My husband's a history teacher. And so... I found it fascinating just from like it's just from the connections to like um, medieval history. It, it's really cool. Oh, hunger! Also historical fiction. This is about the Irish potato famine in the 1840s, which is something that I think most of our students and you know 
Most of Michigan is not Irish. So we have very little connection to the potato famine. Uh, my ancestors came over because of the potato famine. Um, Mine did too. Yours did too. Okay, so maybe I'm wrong about connections to that. <laughs> but just the horrible depths of starvation. And it gets into the political situation in Ireland at the time, specifically between the Irish Catholic peasants and the landowning Protestant English people that had all the money, the tax collectors, the army. And so you have some interesting interplay between who's got the food and the money and the attitude towards the people who are starving to death. Like the family has a pig, so they're like, why don't you just slaughter the pig? Well, if you slaughter the pig, you can eat for a couple of months, maybe. But then what? Who helped warm your hut? So it, it's a really good story, and it, it talks about, so what are the reactions to this? Do you stay and stick it out? Do you leave? Do you thieve? Do you go to America? So it's, it's a great story. Okay, these are all great stories. I'll say that in a minute. <laughs> Dreamland burning is... A mix of historical fiction and modern day story. Uh, it starts out with Rowan, who is a girl in modern day. She's got cell phones and drives and swears like a teenager, um, which I took issue with because it was very casual and like, really? Did, she could say exactly the same thing without dropping the you know, language in there. So just be aware. Um, I would highly recommend this for like, eighth grade and up. This is not a lower middle school book at all. Rowan and her friend, you know, Rowan's family is fairly wealthy. Her mother is a very high-powered black attorney. Her dad is old money, white oil drilling, Tulsa, been there forever, Oklahoman. And it takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And while they're re renovating the uh, old maid's quarters in the back of their property, they find a dead body. And so the story then switches back to 1921 in the race riots in Tulsa in 1921 and the character William. William is the son of a white father and a Choctaw mother. Because in order to keep your oil rights, if you were Native American, you had to marry, you had to have an overseer. So by marrying the Choctaw woman, she could keep her rights to her money. So you get all sorts of different aspects of race and race relations, both in the 1920s and today. So what happened back in the 1920s also affects what happens with Rowan today. It's a really, really good story. Um, the other thing in this is her best friend is a boy, and he has no interest in girls. And he's saying, you know, I am, I am just asexual. So I've, I kind of noticed that in a couple of stories where it's like, everybody's got to have a label. Everybody. You can't have the boy-girl platonic relationship anymore in young adult novels. Everybody's got to have a label. So, you know, just be aware of that. Oh, looks like you're home again. Thunderhead is the second one in Neil Schusterman's uh, Scythe, The Ark of the Scythe. I think it's going to be a trilogy. Hmm. It better be, because this is a serious cliffhanger <laughs> at the end of this book. Have any of you read this? Or Scythe? Okay, basically, it's a futuristic society where humanity, because it's a post-apocalyptic society where humanity has discovered that you need death 
but most of the time we'd rather keep people alive. So the Thunderhead is their AI program that has the responsibility for keeping people alive. And the Scythes are the people who are responsible for ending people's lives. And there's this delicate balance between them. However, the Scythes have become corrupt, and some of them kill merely for the pleasure of it. I mean, there's supposed to be this whole honor quote and stuff, but some of them kill merely for the pleasure of it. So what is humanity going to do? So it's a, it's a, a, it asks a lot of very deep philosophical questions. What does it mean to be human? Because in many ways, the Thunderhead is more human than the Scythes. It's kind of, I mean, there were a couple times where I felt a little uncomfortable because it's almost messianic, but it doesn't quite make that leap. So, I mean, it's, it's always, it's very science fiction. So, and it's, ooh, a cliffhanger like none other. And again, The Journey of Little Charlie. I'm, I got a bit to go. Okay, I'll just keep picking up books and talking about them. The Journey of Little Charlie. Uh, Charlie Bobo is a poor white sharecropper. Yeah, his name is Charlie Bobo, okay? And he is, he's a huge kid. He's huge for his age. He's like, okay, when his dad gets into an accident, you know, his dad's a huge woodchopper, and the axe hits a rock that's been embedded in the tree. The axe head flies off, hits him in the head, and kills him. Charlie is able to pick up his dead dad and put him on the mule and take him home. So we're talking a strapping youth. The problem is, he gets picked up by the plantation owner's slave master because the slave master is going north to recover some stolen property. It's all told in first person from Charlie's perspective. And it takes Charlie a really, really long time to realize that the $4,000 of stolen property are the slaves themselves. This is a great... This would be a great way to talk about the fugitive slave laws. And the difference between what was happening in the United States at that time and what was different right across the Windsor, uh, right across the, the Detroit River in Windsor, Canada. Mm -hmm. Because that's where the stolen property have hidden their son. He's gone to school in Canada. <laughs> But the fugitive slave law was written in such a way that if you could get into Canada and drag somebody back across the border, they were yours. They could take them home. So it's Charlie starts to realize this as he's forced to go on this trip to recover this stolen property. Um, I love, this is the same guy who wrote uh, Watson's Go to Birmingham, 1963. Bud Not Buddy. Bud Not Buddy. And as a former resident of Detroit, I loved his accuracy. Charlevoix and Vernon Streets are like one block apart. Like it's, you know, you know where you know where we're talking about. And it's I love accuracy. It's those little details that that people give in historical fiction that to me make or break a story. This is it's very very disturbing in some parts too, because as Charlie realizes some of the things that happen, the author does go into some very graphic detail about certain things, um, specifically. Putting, putting someone in a bag with an enraged cat. And this happening to a child. So. <laughs> Sixth 
writing up. Yeah, I was saying it's interesting be, because if you've read you want it, this would be a great classroom novel to talk about together. Because yeah, older kids. You know, I was thinking about Christopher Paul Curtis as someone who typically writes first person mm-hmm. from the perspective of an African American child in history, like that. You know, yeah. and, and he and the writing. I think he's still accomplishing the same thing, and it's interesting as an author the choice yeah. to use a white character in that situation. I well, think it's the, interesting of him as an author because of how his history as a writer, yeah. you know, so I think he's branching out and trying well, and new things, And he writes too, in, in the, cool. white dial, the poor white dialect I of saw that, that time. I yeah. seen plenty of animals by the time I was old enough to start talking. Seen? In print, looks really kind of weird. <laughs> but you can just hear it. All right, what's next? I loved that book. I mean, it was fantastic. Parker Inheritance is, again, one of those old-time mixed with new-time stories, and it's a mystery story. It's really cool. Where's the Parker Inheritance? There's a million dollars hidden somewhere. How do you find the clues? How do you get them? And it's, it's a, again, a great book about how our dysfunctional racial history in the United States still affects at day-to-day life today. Great story. It's, I love the mystery of it. Uh, let's see. The Wild Book. Um, this one I picked up specifically because my, um, my two daughters are in Spanish immersion, and I don't read or speak Spanish. So I'm, I'm trying to find, are there books that are in Spanish and that also have been translated into English so that, you know, I can read them and review them and say, yeah, this is a great book or, you know, eh, poor literary quality or whatever. This is a fun story. It's about a magical library. And Juan is, um, his parents are going through a divorce and he gets to go for the summer to his crazy Uncle Tito's house. He really doesn't want to go there because Uncle Tito is kind of crazy and he's got weird bushy eyebrows and you know, drinks gallons of tea every day, and what am I going to do there all that time in this huge rambling house for the summer? Well, he discovers that the books in Uncle Tito's library are not ordinary books. They have a life of their own. And his goal is to find the wild book because before the pirate books catch it. And it's a great story. It is, it is very interesting from a, a literary standpoint to read a book that's been translated into English and to see the different flow and cadence of storytelling. Because it's just slightly different than, say, from an English background. It's, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it comes, you know, obviously it was first written in Spanish. Bad <coughs> Wolf's Daughter is uh, the beginning of a new series. Uh, she is the youngest. It's Middle Ages adventure story. Lots of fun. Her family is captured. She's one of a bunch of, uh, they're not really bandits. They used to be better connected to the Lord in the Castle, but the Lord in the Castle betrayed Dad sort of story. It's a fun story because it's a very strong girl hero. Now we get into some graphic novels. All right. The Cardboard Kingdom. Um, Okay. This guy, Chad Sell, is the illustrator. And... The Cardboard Kingdom is about a neighborhood group of kids and their pretend 
summer life. They build the cardboard kingdom. And throughout the course of the book, more and more kids in the neighborhood become part of the cardboard kingdom. And they all have their superhero alter egos. And it's a wide range of kids. You've got everything from like the initial beginners who start the club, and they've got their their sorcerer, you know, their sorcerer's costume and all of the things. And then another girl joins, and then another kid joins, and you've got everything from the bossy kid that nobody likes to work with because she's just that way. Well, she becomes like the innkeeper. You know, you got to pay your rent and stuff like that. And there's some great friendships that are forged in this story. And then you've got the kid who's the classic bully. Where he sees what's going on over the fence. All you see is the back of his head. There are some... The author does a great job, or the illustrator does a great job of expressing a lot of emotion in completely wordless pictures. It is no, in, in some there there are, there's a lot of text, but some of the you know some of the most gripping scenes are the ones where there's there's no words at all because you know what this kid feels like. Those kids are so dumb. I wish I could be one of them, but boy, they look like they're having fun. But I wouldn't want to be you know a baby like that because they're they're just plain make believe. But boy, does that look fun, doesn't it? Um, my one caveat on this is while the the, the text has a very strong message of the power of imagination in children's lives. That it can help them to envision a better future where dad is not being violent with mom. That I can have some help and protect mom and, and these sorts of things. Um, where I could be a scientist even though I'm a girl. Things like that. However, the end notes from all of the how we built the kingdom, the collaborators, a lot of them, their subtext is we wish we'd had a book like this to help us identify our sexual identity at a younger age. So, on the one hand, most kids don't read the author notes. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, you know, th this is where the authors are coming from, so it would be dishonest not to acknowledge that. And, you know, it, it, parents do read endnotes. So, they're... There you have it. This is, you know, it's a brightly colored book. It's a short read. It's a quick read. It's a graphic novel. Full disclosure. What do we got next? Yvain. All right, this is more like what you think of a graphic novel. It's a little more mature. It's a little darker. This is fabulous because it retains, in English, the original French text of this story of the Knights of the Round Table, specifically the Knight of the Lion, Yvain. It's, it's fun because it's a story most people aren't familiar with. It's not, you know, Lancelot and Guinevere. Um, King Arthur comes off as kind of a, a happy-go-lucky kind of go-get-em guy who's encouraging this guy to, like, well, you know... Life is all about um, going to tournaments and things like that. I'm sorry your wife says you should stay, you know, should make sure you're back there in a year, but come on, tournaments are more fun. That's not what we usually think of with King Arthur at all. Or the Knights of the Round Table. They're supposed to be these noble heroes of chivalry. And when you read the original tales, most of them were deeply flawed individuals. And so how do you deal with this humanity in someone who's supposed to be a hero? And what promises do you make? And how do you keep them? 
Uh, this would be like seventh grade and up, probably. Oh, Boulevard. This is way younger. This is a lot of fun. I hope you don't get tired of listening to me natter on about books. This is beautiful. It's all about Boulevard and the amazing way that you could be completely anonymous in a big city. Anonymous to the point that you could be a dragon, not a dragon, a dinosaur, living in an apartment, and as long as you pay rent on time, and you don't accidentally uh, be standing in a parking spot and get a parking ticket in a tow-away zone, you're probably going to fly under the radar for a long time. And no one's going to believe a 10-year-old that their next-door neighbor is really a dinosaur. It's a really cute story. And it's a lot about friendship and being willing to come out of the shadows and be who you are even if it's a dinosaur in New York. Radioactive, you know what, I'm just going to grab these. Radioactive is for science geeks. It's a great biography. Uh, how many of you know, know, or knew, I didn't know this, and I teach science, that the theory of nuclear fission was first proposed by a woman? Okay, I see a couple people nodding their heads. Lisa Meitner and Irene Curie. Irene Curie is the daughter of the more famous Marie Curie. Great biography. It, it's fast-paced. It's very moving. Um, it doesn't, you know, it gives, you can either read just the plain old text. It's got lots of historical photographs. It's a quick read, but it also gives a lot of really good, well-explained scientific description. So even if you don't know anything about nuclear chemistry, you can start learning something now. Anybody can learn this, or at least the basics. And what's next? Bad Princess. There you go. Um, I was in the library with my fifth and sixth graders. I like take them each week, and we um, spend some time looking at books, and then we spend a little time reading in the library, just kind of have our quiet moment. And so I just grabbed this book because I thought, oh, what's that one? Um, while I was sitting in the library with my students. And I couldn't put it down, and I had to finish it. So that's an interesting, um, it's called True Tales from Behind the Tiara. And I really like it because it's nonfiction. Um, it's got a lot of illustrations to it. It starts with Once Upon a Time, you know, so it kind of uses some of those traditional things, but then it kind of, it, it has a lot of neat text boxes, like the princess rules. Every princess has to, you know, that's kind of how it starts with the premise of what kid, girls or, you know, our modern culture kind of thinks about what a princess is, what a princess does. Um, but then it says, a long, long, long time ago, and then it goes back into some of the real princess stories, like what really happened, what are princesses really like, and it gets into... You know, like, in real life, princesses in the past, and kind of as chronological, like, starting with older, like, six or seven hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, four, and it kind of goes forward in time, but kind of that development of the princess um, myth in some ways, you know, like, well, this princess actually killed herself with poison. This princess actually killed hundreds of her handmaidens, and they kept bringing them to her, and she kept killing them. Like, I'm reading this like, what? So a lot of the princess stories are not around great. Um, you know, and it talks about the idea of a dowry, like what was that, and how did that work, and what were some examples of dowries that really happened in real life. Um, some of the myths that came, like even um, Beauty and the Beast and things that came out of real stories, like here's the real princess, and then here's the story that was told about her later sort of a thing. Um, it even goes into like the 1800s where there was kind of this modern princess idea at that time of like 
people who wanted to get in on the princess thing, or like really uh, men who had lost all the who are supposed to be the dukes. But the American marriage market. Yes, American <laughs> marriage market. And I talked all about that. You got the title, we got the cash. Yep, that was it. And it and, um, has some neat, I, just, I can't find it right this second, but there was some neat like timelines or family trees. Just has a lot of graphics to it. It's not just reading, um, but explains some cool things. Um, in interesting ways. So, I liked it a lot. Don't mistake that with Princesses Behaving Badly, ah. which is about the same size, about the same color. That is for adults. That is not for kids <laughs> at all. Yes. And this I, one, I, it's interesting reading. I'm reading it right now. I'm almost like this close to being done. Okay. It is not for kids. Yeah, and this one asks the question at the beginning, like, should we all want to be a princess? Because that's kind of a modern-day cultural thing. And kind of ends with, like, mm, probably not, right? Like, <laughs> if you really knew what a princess was, you wouldn't want to be one. That's kind of how the moral of the story. Um, undefeated Jim Thorpe and the Carlisle Indian football team. Did you know that there actually was a play where there, someone stuck the ball in their jersey and ran for the touchdown? It was them. Back in the early days of football, okay, I have a, my son just started playing high school football. So I, while I was reading this, I'm like, holy cow, this is so much safer. <laughs> they didn't wear helmets because you were a sissy if you wore helmets. They'd have football hair. They'd let their hair grow and you know get all matted and gross. And people were dying on a regular basis because there was no forward pass. The only way to move the ball up the field was basically put everybody in a big wedge, stick the ball carrier somewhere here in the middle, and just drive forward. The bigger the team, the more yards you got. So if you went head-to-head with somebody, literally the kids were dying. And football almost was completely banned in the United States. Um, However, it wasn't. And one of the teams that developed a lot of the football techniques that we recognize as modern football was actually the now almost completely unknown Carlisle Indian School football team with the amazing athlete Jim Thorpe. This book is not just about football. This is also about the treatment of Native peoples, that with the best of intentions, Carlisle created this school for Native Americans. It was a lot like prison. I mean, his his intention was, we're going to teach these kids how to navigate white society so that they can have better lives for themselves and their families. And a lot of the kids either completely rejected it or they rejected their heritage or they were lost somewhere in the middle where you know how to act but still no one will look at you. So what do you do? Jim Thorpe was one of the few people that in some ways gained recognition just because of his sheer athletic ability. His tryout, he was a track guy. His tryout for the team was the coach said, no, 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 you're a track guy, I need you for track. So he said, okay, give me the ball. They're doing tackling practice, okay? He runs 100 yards through the varsity team tacklers, and nobody catches him. Tosses the ball back to the coach, the coach says, okay, yeah, right, those guys are playing, he's on you. So he rips into his team, hands Thorpe the ball, and he does it again. He was just a blazingly fast guy. So it's been a lot of fun to talk to a lot of football coach and families and stuff, because I'm not really a football person. I play soccer. But to have something to talk about, like people actually sewed handles to their uniforms so that the ball carrier could be thrown over the opposition and across the goal line for the touchdown. No wonder people got killed. <laughs> lots of story, uh, lots of great pictures, lots of well-researched 
historical background to that. And last is this one. our last one? Last, last one. one. Uh, the Faithful Spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is really, really accessible Bonhoeffer. This is a great introduction to who he is and his role. What I really liked was the author's end notes where he's like, the problem of a biography like this is not what to include, it's what do you leave out. And he's very open that he had to leave out a lot of what was going on in concentration camps, what was happening to the Jewish population as a whole. He references it, but he can't go into the graphic detail that you would get in your history class anyways, because the focus has to remain with Bonhoeffer and with the group that he was working with and what they were trying to do. Um, yeah, show some of those pictures. Oh, the pictures. Yeah, it's, it's all written in teal, black, red, and white, which a lot of times is easy to work with when you're reading like this. Other times, it can be really difficult to read. But we're going to assume our students all have younger eyes than us. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a great, I mean, for a, a historical novel for the kids that don't like reading because there's just so much text, this is, it's a great, great way to look at it. And you've got, like, blood and marching people. and I mean, the, the artwork supports the stories beautifully. Does anybody have any questions? Thank you all for listening. Do you have any questions? I that one for seven. No, you think older or? But no, six. Any younger? Sixth grade? Uh... You'd have to have a very, I mean, you, you, this is not a book you'd want to just hand any old sixth grader, or even seventh grader for that matter. Um, the reason I said seventh and up is usually by seventh grade or sometime during seventh grade, most kids have had in social studies some exposure to what was going on in World War II. So that, I think, makes a better background for this book. Not that a sixth grader couldn't understand it, but they might not have the, the frame of reference for it. Thank you all.